From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. You probably wonder, do, I, do you just spend your time sitting at a desk asking questions aloud and hoping that they get answers? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. It's estimated somewhere in the region of five to six trillion dollars was spent online last year. So a lot of money at stake. So, so he has an interest in maybe visitors from other places and consciousness and how maybe we can extend consciousness beyond death or maybe how consciousness is extended beyond death. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily why women leaders are leaving political office, how online shopping sites get you to part with your money, and an insider's account of the secret US government UFO program. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that really needs to be beamed up right now, Scotty. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, started by remembering to forget. So this is, I sit beside somebody who's very forgetful with names. Just very, very poor. Now, now, now I'm at a carousel. I'm at a carousel, so this could be one of, one of three. But I noticed with this particular person that it's starting to be, I think it's, it's, like, it's like a contagion. I'm starting to get very mixed up. And what I'm doing here is I'm completely blaming somebody else for my shortcomings. So today, when I was talking about it, I said, do you know, uh, how, how old did we say yesterday? How old is uh, Will, Will Farrell? And they said, Will Ferrell? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think he's... Come on, lads. And I, I was kind of looking at them as if to say, what's wrong with you? I'm talking about Will Ferrell here. You all know what I'm talking about. I mean, we were only talking about him yesterday. I've said it on the radio. I mean, we all work together, Will Ferrell and how he's working for Louis Vuitton. And they said, are you talking about Ferrell uh, Williams? And I said, yeah, I'm talking about Ferrell <laughs> I'm so sorry. I am... Oh, Will Farrell from Ancorman. Um, that guy. No, no, no. Or oh, from Ilf. He was in Ilf. No, Elf. Oh, no. I've got this all wrong. Will. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's back to just mixing up names and possibly getting older. I'm not sure. Either way, it's getting worse. And I'm blaming no one in particular, apart from the particular person who sits beside me can't remember barely her own name sometimes. And then out of the blue, we'll remember something nobody in the whole world remembers. It's it's a strange little moments of lucidity. I'm told she's not listening at the moment, thank God. But then I was told as an addendum to that sentence that it's only because she's in HR <laughs> complaining about the man on the radio and uh, belittling her. Uh, I, I'd love to tell her now, but I can't remember. But um, tish. The joys of forgetting Tubbs style. The soon to be ex First Minister of Scotland's name is not lost, however. Nicola Sturgeon did well uh, yesterday in her surprise departure when we went up to the uh, office after the show yesterday morning. The rumbling story yesterday was Jeremy Corbyn won't be standing again. Much to, I'm sure, Keir Starmer's great relief over in uh, the UK. But uh, then the new bigger bombshell dropped that Nicola Sturgeon was resigning as... Uh, I was going to say, I was going to say lead singer with the SNP. What's wrong with me? With the, I'm going to do something about a singer in a moment. As as the party leader of the SNP, God help us. Um, and I, you know, I was listening to a lot of different podcasts on this uh, last night and this morning about uh, how they were treating her departure. I was fascinated by the media reaction to uh, a high profile departure from a high profile gig like that. And she said she's going to, she was eight years as first minister. And there's lots of, look, if you're into it, uh, as I would be behind the scenes, lots of stories about why she might be going. And, you know, is it as simple as, you know, I've, I've nothing left in the tank? Because when Jacinda Ardern left in New Zealand, 
the reporters were asking Nicholas Sturgeon, would you take a leaf out of her book? I mean, are you, and she goes, no, the tank is full, I'm ready to go. And then a month or so later, she um, was gone because there was nothing left in the tank. So it was kind of a little puzzling. But as one of her colleagues was saying on Channel 4 News last night, she, it, it, whether, whether it was spin or real, I'm not sure, but he was saying, well, that's what's called, that's the element of surprise. She, like if she had said it back then, everyone would be going, well, when are you going? When are you going? When are you going? But then she just said, I'm out. And it was cleverer. So it was a good spin, a good counterattack. And she had her, her reasons to, to leave. But then they started saying, well, do you remember Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were leaving? And at that time they were saying, it kind of got tired of the noise uh, whatever about the lack of privacy, but also the slight dissent of discourse and uh, people on the street might be maybe not as as beautiful as they once might have been or as polite uh, regarding different things in the world. Anyway, um, this is the little uh, stretch of her speech uh, from her press conference that, that struck me as, as being among one of the more interesting elements of her departure. A First Minister is never off duty particularly in this day and age, there is virtually no privacy. Even ordinary stuff that most people take for granted, like going for a coffee with friends or for a walk in your own, becomes very difficult. And the nature and form of modern political discourse means that there is a much greater intensity, dare I say it, brutality, to life as a politician than in years gone by. That's really bad news, by the way, for future politicians, because that will discourage not just her, but and we spoke about this on the late late about uh, online trolling and so on. Um, it's just going to discourage good people from entering public life. And uh, th- it, that's an interesting word she used, I thought, brutality of public discourse. It's got very ugly and it's getting very dark. And I know that all sounds very foreboding, but it's it's on a bad streak uh, these days. And um, you'd ask, have to ask yourself, why would you bother if you have an alternative? She said, I know I said I wouldn't endorse anyone as my successor, she tweeted last night, but then she retweeted Andy Murray, the famous, famous Scottish uh, tennis player, who tweeted to say, interesting vacancy, was looking to get into politics when I finished playing. You know, so... Whether he was having a laugh or has a sincere interest in politics, I don't know, but I presume that was, he was having the crack. First Minister Murray? First Murray? It's a crazy idea. But is it just crazy enough to work? Yeah, probably not. But look, as Miriam might say, just what gets Ryan excited? A night in at the movies. One thing I was, the White House, which I was kind of interested in was that they had had its own cinema. I always thought the house with its own cinema must be the great, one of the greatest luxuries, greatest luxury of all time. And in fact, on, on Room to Improve there, I was watching it, I kind of caught up with it much later, but there was a guy, and he was in a, a, a terrorist, a, a semi-D, but lovely house and lovely family. And he was really into his movies, and they just did the screen, the pull-down screen. And I thought, yeah, I could handle that. I just had that, that idea. I remember we were doing Furniture Revival, and I thought one thing I thought was beautiful... And I was nearly in, like, I don't, I wouldn't have the space for it, but I'd love to, four or five cinema seats from an old cinema, re, redone, and you just lash them out for a cinema night. I just think they're really cute and cosy uh, with those lovely velour seats and, and the, the good metal, you know, joinery on them. And then roll down the thing and the smell of popcorn from the kitchen. You think, yeah, yeah, I'm in, you know, let's do this. You know, really, really treat yourself. And I don't think it's beyond the beyonds. Um, but there are hotels, according to the Irish Independent in Ireland, with... Screening room, so you can watch a movie in the hotels. I don't. I've done. I've stayed in one or two hotels that would have such a thing, but 
I haven't watched a movie there, but I, they're beautiful additions. I'll name them here. There's the Mount, Mount Juliet in County Kilkenny, which I've never uh, stayed in, but that's got a, a, a hotel, uh, what you call it, a cinema. The Devlin in Dublin, I've never been there either. That's in Ranelagh. That's got a 44-seater. Uh, the Montanotti in Cork uh, also, of course, has one. 50 salubrious seats in its cameo cinema. And that sounds nice. Ashford Castle in Kong in Mayo has a 32-seater. and includes copious doses of The Quiet Man, which, of course, was filmed locally. Popcorn pick-and-mix sweets, complimentary for the guests. All in. Uh, where else? The Cork International Hotel. Cork Airport, the Park Kenmare, County Kerry, the Brennans, with a 16-seat cinema, beautiful, and Glenlow Abbey in Galway, 15 velvet lounge chairs, dark mahogany panelling and intimate lighting set the mood at the Abbey movie theatre. That's a love, that is, a, that, would, that would really sell a hotel for me if it had a movie for one of the, one of the evenings. Lovely thing to do. Probably cheaper than going to the cinema these days, am I right? No, 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 I'm, I'm not, am I? At one fine stage of this morning's newsings, Ryan addressed a TV programme he doesn't watch. We're talking about The Masked Singer. This is a programme I cannot watch. Uh, I just can't. The thought of those people in the costumes, the humiliation of it, um, the, 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 the costumes themselves are so preposterous. But I will say, and I don't mean to, to be so, you know, to, to knock it, because it, a lot of people do love it. Which is fine. I mean, I'll watch Star Trek Next Generation and, and a lot of you will say, well, you're just a fool for watching that. And I get that too. So it's like horses for course. We're all going to be friends, okay? So there's nothing wrong with that. But the Mass Singer is a phenomenon. And it's going great guns for everybody, isn't it? And over in the States, I think they're on season nine of it at the moment or thereabouts. It's, it's a massive, massively popular program. And this, this, in this season, season nine, it was the opening show. So what do you, if you don't know the mass singer, they would get these ridiculous costumes and that looked like they might be you might see them in the local bowling alley trying to promote the you know they're, they're kind of it's all a bit cheap and nasty and the people put the sing their sing the song everyone has to guess who they are and then they have a panel of judges who say are you uh, and they name off famous people who they may, may or may not be okay you might be into that that's fine it does a job and it's hugely popular and they get great singers on it in fairness to them so they're doing something right. And they're doing lots of things right. But they kept saying, the big singer this season is going to be the guy dressed up as the gnome. So everyone's waiting for the gnome. And who is the gnome? And who could possibly be saying? So the gnome comes on, season one, nine, episode one, and everyone's going, who is the gnome? Who's in that costume? Because they keep saying it's going to be a legend. Who could this legend be? Now, as it turns out, the legend, it's a slightly left of field legend. But in my book, probably I would cry if, if I, I'd be so happy. Now, it's not Paul McCartney before everyone says it. It's not, so it's not that legend. Okay, so it's different. But I'm going to play you now the moment where the, 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 the legend, the gnome, takes his head off, the mask of the head off, and the panel, which includes Robin Thicke, who's obviously uncancelled, uh, Nicole Scherzinger. <laughs> Wasn't he cancelled? I thought he was. Nicole Scherzinger and a few other heads, head the balls get all excited and but first they have to guess who it is so they go you'll hear some famous names and then the presenter who nearly loses his reason says actually it's the following so here is the singer unmasked I hope you're not watching it because I'm just a spoiler alert here. we cannot wait to see your yes. famous face King what you got Robert De Niro Tony Bennett mm, I'm going with Dustin Hoffman nice this is 
the legendary Dustin Hoffman. Good guess. But I think we really want to know who the gnome is Let's right go. now. Let's right? go. Okay, okay, that was pretty good. I would be very excited. Dick Van Dyke, to me, is one of the greats of all time. Nicole Scherzinger burst out crying because she was so excited. And, and uh, you know, it's a nostalgia thing. That's Dick Van Dyke. He sang then, he, he sang a bit of uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which was, I'm sure was very cute. And um, he's 97 years old. And this is my theme this week. Nonagenarians. Not just octogenarians, the nonagenarians. When you think of Shan Phillips yesterday hitting 90 in May and doing one-woman shows in the theatre, ageing has changed so... It's changed everything. And your 70s are now definitely young and your 80s aren't what they used to be. And that lovely man who who who's, who I go into... The, the, the florist up the road for me, John, I met him during uh, COVID. I met him once uh, standing outside by, buying flowers and he had his crutch... And he's, I think he's 98. And every now and again, I go in to buy my twice, twice every two weeks, bi-weekly bunch of flowers for myself, for my kitchen. And every now and again, Joe will say, by the way, no charge. And there's a little card and it's from my, your friend, John with a stick. And he says, hope you're keeping well. Every now and again, or if it's Easter, a plant or what have you. Uh, just a little thing. And he's enjoying life and he's uh, going for dinners. And it, I'm just in awe of, of people who just keep, keep on going. Like Dick Van Dyke in 97, he's still dancing, he's still having the crack and it's 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 all possible it just it, it's it is just remarkable so um that's something something we're going to touch on on the late late tomorrow night um which I'll talk, tell you more about another time anyway that's Dick Van Dyke delighted with life and I, I just I'm very fond of him and what he's doing and his joie de vivre and the way he handles it all Dick Van Dyke the man the legend the uber cockney how could you top that, you ask? Well, you couldn't, simply put. So that's where we're leaving the newsings from this morning's Ryan Turbity show for today. There was shock and surprise yesterday morning when Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon resigned. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Mary Ann Seacart author of The Authority Gap, joined Claire to discuss the pressures faced by female political leaders. Claire began the discussion by playing a clip from Nicola Sturgeon's resignation speech. Now, to be clear, I'm not expecting violins here, but I am a human being as well as a politician. My point is this, giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. The country deserves nothing less. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. For me, it is now in danger of becoming too long. A First Minister is never off duty, particularly in this day and age, there is virtually no privacy. Even ordinary stuff that most people take for granted, like going for a coffee with friends or for a walk in your own, becomes very difficult. And the nature and form of modern political discourse means that there is a much greater intensity Dare I say it, brutality to life as a politician than in years gone by. All in all, and actually for a long time without it being apparent, it takes its toll on you and on those around you. And if that is true in the best of times, it has been more so in recent years.
So, so what does this tell us about females in positions of power? Are they more likely than their male counterparts to know when to call it a day? I think women are more willing to leave on a high and to leave, therefore, voluntarily. I think men on the whole, and I'm only talking about averages here because, of course, Margaret Thatcher held on till the very last moment by her fingertips. But I think men on the whole will want to have as much power as they possibly can. And therefore, they will only leave office when they are forced to, either by losing an election or because their colleagues force them out. And I think it's partly because women tend to be slightly less ego-driven than men. And therefore, they don't see it as a weakness or a sign of vulnerability to give up before the end. In fact, if anything, they see it as a sign of strength that they have actually left in a manner of their choosing and at a time of their choosing. And they're not quite so concerned with the competitiveness of how long can I be in power? Will I beat my predecessor's record? And yet, Marianne, to get to the position where you are First Minister in Nicola Sturgeon's case, Prime Minister in Jacinda Ardern's case, you've got to have engaged in high-level competition to achieve that status in the first place. Yes, you absolutely do have to. And you wouldn't be in power if you didn't want to do something good for that power. But I suspect that women are perhaps a little better at standing back and looking at what they've achieved and looking at the future and understanding they've probably achieved all they're going to achieve. And therefore, what's the point of clinging on? And particularly if they start to see themselves as... um, a bit of a sort of downside for the party they're running. So I think Nicola Sturgeon was saying yesterday, she was acknowledging that she had become so divisive that she was actually holding the SNP back. Now, that's quite an admission to make. I think it's a, I think it's a sign of strength to be able to admit that publicly. But I suspect some men might see it as a sign of weakness. Do you think that it's a sign of being aware of the purity of your purpose? So I am here to do this job. If I can no longer perform this job, I'm gone. Absolutely that, yes. It's putting the job before yourself, isn't it? But I do think there's another factor too. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon yesterday used the word brutality about public life. And I think that brutality is a lot worse if you're a female politician than if you're a male one. I mean, it's no fun for either gender, but female politicians suffer so much abuse these days online, in social media. And Jacinda Ardern mentioned it, too. I think that, you know, that's a a real cross to bear. And I think that for women, it is a lot harder still than it is for men. So it's a different experience then being a public figure and being female. Yes, absolutely. You have to be a lot tougher to withstand that. And I can understand why women like Sturgeon or Ardern or indeed Merkel before them just thought eventually enough is enough. What about the perceptions, Marianne, of of women and the expectations placed on them by society? Does that have an impact here too? I think it probably does. So I've written a book called The Authority Gap about how we're more reluctant to accord authority to women than to men. And this happens a lot in the public sphere, that we expect more from our female leaders, because not only do we expect them to be strong and decisive and to show real leadership and to be charismatic, but we also expect them to be warm and engaging and emotionally intelligent, much more than we do for male leaders. And so, again, I think that's an extra burden that female leaders have to bear. 
Let's talk about uh, another view that could be taken here when we look at these two resignations coming so close together. You will have those who will say, well, those women or women in general are not resilient enough to carry on leading when it gets tough. What do you say to people who, who might put forward that argument? Oh, no, I, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, look how resilient Angela Merkel was, you know, how long she was Chancellor and how successful she was. Actually, look how resilient Nicola Sturgeon has been and how long she's been First Minister. Uh, she's probably been the most ex- electorally successful politician uh, in the UK in her generation. So she let, you know, she did it for as long as she wanted to and then she decided she didn't want to do it anymore. But I think she showed enormous resilience along the way. And do you think that others, including some men, could learn from what we've seen Nicola Sturgeon do this week? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in a way, it is, as you said earlier, it's, it's an unselfish act, isn't it, to put your party and your cause before yourself. And I think, you know, to leave on a high is the best thing any politician could do. Marianne Seacart, author of The Authority Gap, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the resignation of Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Marguerite Sinnott spoke to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line about her experience at the swimming pool in UCD on Wednesday. Uh, yesterday I was at the pool in UCD with my three children, um, uh, a six-year-old, four-year-old and a seven-month-old. We were in the toddler pool okay. and my, my smallest guy, uh, he started giving out of it. So I just sat at the side of the, of the toddler pool to breastfeed him. Okay. So that was fine. A couple of minutes, we stopped and got back into the pool. He had his feet and he was happy again, and we got back into the pool to do our swimming. And a few minutes later, uh, a UCD staff member arrived at the toddler pool mm-hmm. and asked me to uh, to get out of the pool to talk to her that she needed to address something with me. So she, uh, she commenced uh, by stating that she had been made aware that I was breastfeeding in the toddler pool. And I said, that's correct. I was breastfeeding my seven-month-old baby in the, in, in the, in the pool. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, you can't do that. If you, if you want to feed your child, you'll have to go to a cubicle in the changing room. And I said, I was kind of shocked um, to be kind of confronted with this mm-hmm. uh, on university grounds in the 21st century in Ireland. Um, I was kind of stuck to the ground for a minute. But I said to her, are you, are you seriously asking me to leave the pool to breastfeed my child? And she said, yes, it's not safe for your child. Um, it's not sanitary. Um, it's against health and safety. Um, so you'll have to leave the pool if you want to breastfeed him. And she stood there. Kind of, I, think she, I think she was waiting for me to exit mm-hmm. the pool, but I didn't. So was, the reasons were, one, health and safety. Health and safety. It was kind of a mishmash of... Just very uh, tepid, very insipid excuses, which I saw as whitewashing, and they weren't genuine excuses. You know, my, you know, me giving my baby a feed was not posing any health and safety risk um, to anyone in the pool um, or to her. Um, and if you know, it's, it's she, mm-hmm. she then she said, "Well, if your baby vomited, then I would have to close the pool." And I said, you know, my baby is not any more likely to vomit uh, than you or I or anyone in the pool. Um, and she said, well, if you did vomit, then I would have to close the pool. So uh, I said, well, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's acceptable. And I'm, ex- I'm, I'm really shocked that 
you are saying this to me, that you are confronting me with this in the 21st century in university grounds, um, and that you think it's acceptable that I should have to hide to breastfeed my child. And I said, who made you aware of Mm -hmm. me breastfeeding my child? And she said, another pool user. Um, So I said, like, this is nonsense. This is not acceptable. Um, I have a right to feed my child, and I will feed him anywhere, anytime. And um, Has anything like this ever happened to you before, Marguerite? Pardon? Has anything like this ever happened before? Uh, It's it's kind of... I've had some similar experiences, but not as overtly as that. I have never been asked to leave an area... Okay. Uh, because I was breastfeeding, you know, by way of punishment and, and, and humiliation. The, and the law is very, is, unusually, is crystal clear. You can breastfeed anywhere you and your baby want or need to. Exactly. So the Equal Status Act 2000 um, has nine discriminatory grounds, which makes it unlawful mm-hmm. to discriminate against a person for. And the two grounds which breastfeeding mothers are protected for under the Equal Status Act are... Um, the, the gender ground and the family status ground. Um, so although there's no explicit reference to breastfeeding, it is very well established by mm. law that breastfeeding is protected under those two grounds yeah. under the equal status. And, we, and this was mentioned last week in a different context, and that was a woman who brought her child, uh, her child uh, with autism, in to uh, get the passport photo taken. All went fine. And then she was charged 50% more she discovered in the in the shop she was being charged fifty percent more than any other so child if you follow me and um the the reason offered by the proprietor was oh your child is autistic well that is that is outlawed under the same act as well disability is one of the yeah. So we're, um, we'll find out if that person has actually, if that shop have actually changed their policy because they'd want to change their policy. Okay, now UCD did did uh, put up an apology on Twitter, in fairness. Did, yeah. And what did that say? Uh, the apology said, uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm very glad to see it, and thank you to UCD for apologising publicly, which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is not just, about, this is not about me, actually, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, I've encountered this before and um, I'm happy to speak out about it. Um, but others might be less likely to uh, speak out about it when, when this thing happens. And so I would like for this never to happen again and for women never to experience this again at the okay. pool or elsewhere in Ireland. But they said they, they did apologise and say sorry for what had happened and that it shouldn't have okay. happened. Well, the- and that they, they will uh, conduct training to ensure it does not happen again. Marguerite Sinnott, who was asked to stop breastfeeding her baby at the pool in UCD yesterday, talking to Joe Duffy this afternoon. Clara O'Shea Collins grew up in care, and she told Ryan Tuberty this morning how that affects her perspective as a social worker. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and take us up to about 18 months. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So I was actually born in County Kerry. Yeah. You wouldn't guess it. I don't have the accent. Okay. Um, I always say I got out before I started talking. No offence to the Kerry people. <laughs> I have okay. family down there still. But um, yeah, I was put into foster care when I was about a year and a half. Um, and I ended up moving to like three different foster families in the Wicklow area. Um, and then landed with my current parents, um, Ruth and Seamus, like, a week before Christmas, the 9th of December, when I was nearly three. Okay. Do you have any recollection of the previous 
movings around uh, because pre three, I, I I couldn't imagine. But do you? Uh, I can't say that I have a huge recolle- yeah. recollection. Um, obviously, I was so so young, but I definitely have photos. Um, from kind of the second family that I was with. So I do know and I always knew where I came from. Like my foster family were really clear on making sure I always knew where I'd come so from. So what age, Clara, are, does one become sentient enough even to understand the situation? Even if your, your foster family are telling you from the get-go, what age do you kind of go, do, is, it, is it going in intellectually? Yeah, I think kids understand a lot more than people maybe give them yeah, credit for particularly like a really young child it's, it's, I suppose it's not just a foster family that's involved at that stage I had social workers my foster family had social workers supporting them as well so you kind of become aware of all these extra people in your lives that maybe those friends or your cousins or people around you don't have yes. um, and of course it was always spoken about I always knew that I had another mum and a dad um, out there <laughs> and was there contact with let's call them the birth family is, yeah on contact? and off over the years um, I still have contact with some of them like I have some half siblings and things so yeah. yeah one of them in particular my brother Shane I'm really close with he lives in Dublin now so we've kind of reconnected over the years so. lovely yeah. And did, did your foster family have to have a consult and chat with your birth mother on, on, on different things or your birth parents? Or yeah, whatever? like every year I says when a, when a child is in foster care or any type of alternative care, they'd have a review meeting at least once a year. And that's like to make sure that at least once a year, everybody involved in my life was there. So that's yeah. my, you know, my birth mom, my foster parents, the social workers and anyone else that was kind of involved to support me kind of had a round table to make sure that I was really getting the care that I needed. And you were the first child that your parents, as you call them your parents, uh, fostered, uh, but they but they went on to obviously foster a lot more children. So what did you understand about what was going on? What was happening in your head? When they were fostering yeah, other children. Yeah, other children coming and going. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something that they were always doing. Like my, my foster mum, my mum, Ruth, um, had a preschool. So there was always kids around. She was always childminding. So whenever we fostered kids, as a child, I wasn't interested in kind of their backstory, where they'd come from. It was just another person to play with. Yes. Or, you know, another child being added to the gaggle that we played with. Um, so yeah, they fostered a lot of other kids kind of as I was growing up. But I was the only one that stayed kind of long term. One of the things that, that, that always... Um, I always try to have trouble getting my head around for foster families is the comings and goings and the fact that they will welcome in this child into their home it's such a special place to bring uh, a child because it's 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 the arms of a harbour isn't it for a boat and saying it's okay it's safe and you're you're welcome and we'll mind you and we'll give you what you need yeah and then there comes a time maybe months maybe years later where you have to say well listen this 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 part of the trip is over now that'll break my heart how do foster parents deal with with that how I mean, I'm not a foster parent I know so I can't speak not. but I know yeah, it takes yeah. a really special person to be able to do that and it's like asking people to do the impossible you're asking them to open up their hearts and their home to a little person and love them unconditionally but and you're, fully and you're a foster sibling you know if yeah. in that sense you saw you know young boys and girls coming and going from your life it that was must, hard I would have thought suppose so we always saw it as a positive like we always knew okay. that fostering was looking after that little person for as long as they needed it and not as long as we needed to oh that's a lovely way of putting it so, so there was like you almost knew that it was finite yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and it was a positive like if they got to go back home to their parents or their own family like 
that was amazing. Like the work had been done and we minded them for as long as they needed that. Yeah, that's a really uh, optimistic and positive way of seeing it. I was going to come through the prism of sadness and melancholy, yeah, but you said, I mean, wait there a minute. There is that sadness as well, definitely. Yeah. But um, I suppose we always kind of knew that's what fostering was about, was kind of looking after them as long as they needed that. You you got the most beautiful foster parents, um, or your parents ultimately, because you yeah. they adopted you, didn't they? And, yeah, uh, a, like a week or two before I turned 18. Tell me about that and the process and, you know, was that something you sat down and did they say to you, listen, we'd love to do this? And It know? was something that I started asking for when I was about 15 or 16 and I kind of asked them, I was like, I've been here forever, like, why don't you just adopt me? And obviously at that age as a teenager, I didn't understand that there's a process there. Mm. I kind of just thought, well, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, so let's let's do this. And I suppose, obviously, as I was younger, it's something they would have liked to do. And I says the, the option wasn't there, maybe the, you know, my family of origin, obviously, that's an emotional thing to, in one sense, I was in voluntary care. So there was that agreement from them that somebody has to be looking after me, but to be adopted is a very legal kind of final mm. um process. But what I found most baffling was that, foster like adopting someone from foster care isn't very common so when it came to the adoption process my foster parents had to go through the exact same process as somebody like a stranger who never met me like as in maybe a couple or a person that was adopting a baby so we had this whole process where social workers were coming out of the house and like checking that it was safe and checking that they were like suitable how many years had you been there um, oh, at that stage, I was there since I was three to so 13, 17, 14 13, 14 years. And they were coming years. out like it was from scratch. Yeah, and I remember asking Crikey. the social worker, because obviously I was like 16, 17, I was like, so like, what are we going to do if they don't pass it? Like yeah. this assessment, and they were like, oh no, you'll still be here. It, it was one of those kind of red tape things where the process okay. for adoption was kind of a one size fits all. They didn't have a tailor to somebody uh, yeah. who'd been in foster care before. It doesn't sound like a great use of time, but nevertheless, it, it, it is what it is. And that's the system and they do it. And I'm sure there's a reason for it that I will never understand. Why at 15 or 16, Clara, did you want to be adopted? I think for me, it was about being like a, a full part of the family. Like I always had been, but I suppose like my birth cert, my passport, everything was with my, you know, my original name. It was different to my foster family. So I was O'Shea and they were all Collins. Um, now in school I kind of went by the two O'Shea Collins yeah. um, and that made sense because my brother my foster brother was obviously in the same school so it made things a bit easier as well but it made me feel like I was belonging but it's something I just felt like I wasn't going anywhere and I just wanted to be you know 100% a part of their family It was an identity thing in um, some ways I guess so yeah, yeah and kind of like a like a very permanent thing And you had to get a new birth cert then, is that right? Or? Yeah, I was so glad I was 17 because I think if you'd asked me to rename myself when I was like 10 or 11, God yeah. knows what I would have come up with. But yeah, I got a new birth cert and a passport. And like the process, like you had to go into the adoption authority and there's like 10 or 15 different kind of really high up people in there who've looked at the application and They're had all, a couple of questions si- like in, in this in big long table what? yeah and we went in and they had like I think they were like are you sure and I was like yep yeah, <laughs> we've gone this far okay. and then we kind of signed this piece of paper and then I got a new I was able to apply for a new birth cert like a few weeks later did did, did it feel wonderful or did you did you have a, a certain ambivalence to it all it was a little bit anticlimactic. Like I think we'd gone through all this work and all these interviews and like most of them had been with my foster parents because as I said, like the process I, at that stage anyway wasn't made for, you know, an almost adult to be being the one being adopted. Yeah. Um, yeah, we went into this room and it was kind of, it was a bit anticlimactic but it was also a really special moment and like we went out for lunch after and it's something that we celebrate every year. I say I have like two birthdays now. I <laughs> have like my anniversary with my foster parents yes. and then my birthday. 
That's social worker Clara O'Shea Collins talking to Ryan Turberley this morning about her own experience of growing up in care. Clara is a youth council member of Empowering People in Care, a children's rights organisation that advocates with and for children and young people in state care and aftercare. Online shopping sites and apps always seem to have an idea of what might tempt you into pulling out your credit card. This morning, Claire Byrne spoke to RTE business correspondent Adam McGuire about the psychology of online shopping. So how common are these kinds of tools? They're everywhere, really. And, and it's no surprise because it's estimated somewhere in the region of five to six trillion dollars was spent online last year. So a lot of money at stake. And, and if you're a retailer, if you can get an extra few shoppers in or get them to bump up their basket a bit more, it's, it's a very valuable thing. And a lot of these techniques aren't actually really that new. You know, they, they kind of go back to the Mad Men era and Ernest Dieter, but technology has made them far more powerful than they, they were in the real world, so to speak. So explain to us then how technology plays a role in all of this. Well, for a start, you don't have to go to a shop now in order to, to fall victim to, to some of these influences. You know, an online retailer is, is just a few clicks away. They can grab your attention with a push notification or send you an email or a text about a promotion. So you don't have to be walking by the window to be tempted to, to spend a few a few euro. And retailers also don't have to wait to see if, if their promotions and if their techniques are working because they can look at real-time data, see we've done this, we're now seeing a bump in sales or we're not. And they can tweak what they're doing on the fly, really, to make it as effective as possible. Mm-hmm. So talk us through why they are so successful, Adam. Why do they work so well on us? Well, they're pre- a lot of them will prey on our, our FOMO, our fear of missing out. Uh, we have, we all have this innate anxiety that we're missing out on something. And some of it goes back to, you know, a caveman instinct that you're, you're missing out on your next meal. Some of it relates to just social pressure that you're trying to keep up with your peers. And retailers will play on that as much as possible to, to get us to buy. And it, it can take different shapes. So you might click on an item of clothing that you're looking at and you see a little bit of text at the bottom in red telling you there's only two uh, left in your size so you know buy now if you don't want to be disappointed Mm -hmm. or maybe you're looking at a package holiday and it tells you 10 other people are looking at this exact same package holiday right now and you know it's limited so I'm going to need to move on this or it's a time limited offer it's telling you you'll get a 20% or 30% discount but you have to buy it in the next hour and whatever it is it's all designed to to start a clock ticking in your head to put you under pressure to buying and and to do it before you have time to sit back and maybe think about the purchase see if there's a better offer elsewhere or, or even just realise, actually, I don't need this right now. You know, we, we, we're far less rational when we're under pressure. And, and what's really underhand about it is that often this pressure is completely made up by the retailer. You know, there are some cases where the retailer has a sophisticated system and knows we're running low on stock and can tell you that so that you genuinely will get the last item. But a lot of the times research have shown that it's actually just a kind of random code generator un- underneath the hood. When, of the when they're saying there's two left. When they're saying there's two left or they're saying there's 10 people looking at the site it's actually just a made-up number and, and if you refresh it, you'll get a different number and it's just a way of trying to turn up the pressure. Is there not bit. a rule against that, an EU regulation that I can there, stop? There probably is, but mm. you know, it's it's very hard to, to clamp down these. And you know, I've spoken before about a, a, a retailer I went to had had a 24-hour sale on, uh, but the 24-hour sale lasted a week or two. It just kept adding time to the clock and then it went off for a, a day or two and then it came back on again. So it was it was never really discounted. The discounted price yeah, was I, the real price. I was coincidentally thinking about this over the last few days because I was buying leggings for a child, right? Navy leggings. They're just very basic. And they kept telling me that they were either sold out on one day when I was looking at them or that there were two left on another day. And if you think about that logically, this is a big retailer. They're selling lots of these things. They can't possibly 
run out and never have them again. I, I, well, someone actually made the point to me that, that there's a website where, you know, you say notify me if you've run out of stock and then you get the text or email and you have to pounce on it in order to, to, to make the purchase. So again, it's that way of putting you under pressure, not giving you the time to think about this or to find a better offer elsewhere. And there are, you know, there are some rules against, like, for example, the, the discount rule, you know, saying that this is a, a discounted item. Under the, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission says the before price has to have been in place for at least 30 days. Yes. So you can't just drop the or bump the price up for a day, drop it back down and say it's discounted. But of course, online retail is hard to regulate. And if it's not an Irish site or it's not an EU site, especially, it's going to be really hard to enforce rules like that. So they can sort of do what they want, really. To an extent, so, yeah. I mean, technically, when they're selling into Europe, they should follow the rules, but but it's going to be hard so to enforce we, that. So we have to be wise to this yes, and be sensible. Yeah. So the impulse purchase, Adam, let's talk about that now, because we might associate that more with being in a shop, seeing something that we hadn't intended on buying and picking it up. So how does that work online? Yeah, because usually the, the items at the tail is the classic example, you know, the chocolate bars in, in, a, in a supermarket, yeah. whatever. But online shopping actually means that we're being nudged to, to make an impulse purchase almost all the time. So it could be from the very start, you might get a push notification about a sale or an item that's available. You weren't planning on buying, but suddenly you're in the mindset of, oh, actually, that's a bargain or, or I want one of those. But even if you've gone looking for the product, you found what you wanted, you'll, you'll get offered add-ons, you know, based on what you're buying. It might be accessories on, on an item of clothing or or an extra cable or a bit of an add-on for a device you're buying. And it, it's it's kind of everything really. You know, if you, if you order on a takeaway app, for example, you, you'll get to the checkout stage and you're offered the, a few side dishes and, uh, you know, drinks and things that you might have forgotten to mm-hmm. add to your original order. Uh, I spoke to someone the other day who bought a Valentine's Day card online and at the checkout they were offered, would you like a bigger card for an extra couple of euros? and said well why not and then the postage was higher because it was a bigger package as well so they ended up paying a lot more than they planned to when they went to buy it in the first place Aha and we can get upsold then on purchases is that upselling what you've just described? That's that's a version of it yeah and like you know again the classic example is going into the fast food chain and them saying well for 50 cent you'll get a supersized version of, of what you're buying but, but it covers really everything and even on the more expensive items it's almost easier for them to do it because if you're already spending big then an extra bit doesn't seem so much relatively speaking to what you're actually uh, putting down so you're spending a grand on a new TV but for 100 euro extra you get a bigger and better model so it's only 100 euro even though that is a lot of money you may as well it's only a small amount of what you're already spending and and another really common upselling ta- tactic online is, is free shipping you know so if you spend X amount your shipping is free you end up buying things you don't need to get to that target or or things that you weren't planning on spending and sometimes you spend more in the process of what you'd actually spend on the shipping just to get to the, because mm. you feel like you're getting a bargain because but, it's free but, but that doesn't just happen online you you know, the, the upselling as well or, you know, spend 50 and you'll get a tenner off, you know, yeah, one, yeah. Of, and one of the big the, retailers doing that. The three for two offers and all that kind of stuff where, again, it's get you weren't planning on buying two items even, but you end up with three because there's a, there's a deal on. Yeah, you, so, you spend so, more, but you feel like you're getting a bargain. So they're old fashioned, really, and they've been around a long time, they, but they've been upgraded to cater for the, yeah, the online exactly. world. And, yeah, and they, they tap into that immediacy as well that online allows that just doesn't happen in the real mm-hmm. world. RTE business correspondent Adam McGuire on the many ways online shopping businesses get us to part with our money on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Dubliner Colm Callagher is the co-author of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO programme. And he spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon. I was working in uh, in Denver, Colorado, at a um, an immunology research institute, mainstream uh, immunology. I saw an ad in this uh, it's called Science Magazine, which is kind of one of the premier journals in the world. They usually 
advertise for, you know, assistant professors in immunology and what have we. But I saw this bizarre ad, a uh, half-page ad in Science Magazine. It said, we are recruiting scientists who are interested in exploring the origin and evolution of consciousness in the universe. And that was such a bizarre, uh, unusual ad that I just had to pick up the phone. I uh, picked up the phone uh, and, and talked to a guy in Las Vegas called Robert Bigelow, who was recruiting mainstream scientists into this program that uh, was to study uh, unidentified flying objects and other anomalies associated with uh, UFOs. Okay. So um, it was just kind of like a happenstance that I happened to read this ad. Who is Robert Bigelow? Robert Bigelow is the billionaire businessman who lives in Las Vegas. Um, he created a company called Bigelow Aerospace in 1999, and uh, he actually lays claim to the only um, privately owned spacecraft that's currently docked to the International Space Station. It is currently orbiting, uh, docked with the, with the International Space Station, and um, so he owns a, um, this aerospace company, but he also has a lot of business and banking interests all the way through the United States and Arizona and Texas. Mm. So he's a very sort of wealthy guy, um, very interested in sort of pushing back the frontiers of science, you know, for humanity, essentially. So, so he has an interest in maybe visitors from other places and consciousness and how maybe we can extend consciousness beyond death or maybe how consciousness is extended beyond death. All, all of the above. Right. Uh, the, the organization that he first formed uh, way back in the 90s studied actually everything to do with what you've just mentioned, but it also had a focus on uh, the UFO topic and all of the anomalies associated okay. with UFOs. So, um, you know, this institute ha it essentially had to stop studying the consciousness angle for quite a while because the UFO angle quickly became very overwhelming because he purchased a property in northeastern Utah called later later to be known as Skinwalker Ranch but this was a this was a property in northeastern Utah that had a lot of UFO activity as well as other bizarre um, instances of paranormal activity, poltergeist activity, okay. all mixed in like a Grand Central Station, essentially. Yeah, so it's like a theme park for paranormal and UFOs. Before we get to that, just one more person I need, I think the listeners need to know about is uh, Senator uh, Harry Reid. He, he was Senate Majority Leader, uh, so a very popular and powerful American politician. Where does he come into the story? Well, he, Senator Reid, um, very early on, um, sort of became friends with uh, Robert Bigelow and a few other people associated with Robert Bigelow. And he used to come to uh, some of the briefings that were put on through this, uh, this organization that Robert Bigelow created. So Senator Reid had a, a strong interest in the national security implications of the UFO phenomenon. So um, once the uh, this whole sort of uh, momentum started building, Senator Reid uh, created a series of earmarks uh, with the with the Defense Department and caused a uh, a new program to be created back in 2008 
called the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. So Senator Reid um, caused that program, which became a $22 million program, right. uh, through, through his organization, and the money was funneled through the Defense Intelligence Agency in the United States government. So the Defense Intelligence Agency has a unit called the Defense Warning Office, and they wanted to look at the national security implications, threat analysis of the UFO topic. But Senator Reid was the guy, the instrumental guy, in pushing that whole thing okay. through the bureaucracy in Congress. So, so he got the money, he put it out the tender, uh, and your friend, Mr. Bigelow, he was the only person to apply, and so he got the job. Um, and then well, he, uh, yeah, there were other people applied, but he basically got the job. He got the job, right, okay. Uh, uh, and then he employed you? You were the first yeah, person he, to be employed? He, he, I was actually working in a, in a biotechnology company in San Francisco when Bigelow called me and said, look, we've got a uh, defense intelligence agency contract. Are you interested in coming back to Las Vegas to work on, you know, top secret UFOs. And mm. that was an offer I just couldn't refuse. So um, I oh. headed back to Las Vegas and it was just like a dream come true because the fact that the United States government was putting money behind this and also top secret security clearances meant that this was the first time in history that a serious look at UFOs was possible through the Defense Intelligence Agency and the United States government. An intriguing snippet from Ray Darcy's chat this afternoon with Dubliner Colm Kelleher, who's the co-author of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO programme. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, domestic abuse and homeless shelters for women are experiencing significant pressures as price rises combined with housing shortages take their toll. Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Brian O'Connell visited Adele House Domestic Abuse Shelter in Cork earlier this week and he joined Claire this morning. Adele House is one of several services provided by the Good Shepherd Cork charity. It's been newly redeveloped, as you said. Uh, very impressive development, family rooms, mini apartments, if you like, on site, play areas for children therapy rooms, cooking areas, and it's all in a very bright, warm and inviting building. They could probably fill the building twice over every night if they had additional space. Such is the pressure on services at the moment. Now, we know many type of people, many people, sorry, unfortunately, are given B&B type accommodation. So for women fleeing abuse, as you can imagine, or with addiction issues or vulnerable, for example, to long term homelessness, it's not ideal and it's not suitable accommodation. Before we hear, Claire, from two women who are currently in Adele House, I began with a walk inside with Alison Aldred, who's the chief executive of Good Shepherd Cork, and then I met some other staff. So we've got 33 units currently here in operation. Ten of those are family units and the, the remainder are uh, single units. What's the pressure like at the moment on the services? Huge, huge. I mean, in Edel House, across all of our services, there's just a huge pressure for accommodation. I'm Claire Harrington. I am the volunteer and event coordinator with Good Shepherd Cork. There are huge pressures on the services at the moment. Um, we are full every night with women. We have women here, single women, and we have women with um, their families, children here as well. So we are full every night. Um, as soon as somebody leaves here, then there is somebody more than willing and ready to replace them straight away. Are there any particular trends you're seeing over the past while in terms of the people who are presenting? I suppose that's the thing at the moment. 
everybody, anybody can present to be here. I'm here a very long time and there was a time where you would have had, you'd see the same faces coming over and over again, whereas now you have very different backgrounds. You would have people getting up here in the morning going to work and going to work, they're holding down full-time jobs, but because of their situation or because of the housing situation, they don't have anywhere to go. So there is no typical homeless person anymore. We know that uh, domestic abuse is getting a lot of focus and rightly so at the moment yeah. because... Uh, there seems to be more and more incidents of it. Yeah, yeah, domestic violence. And I think as well because of COVID, people were at home an awful lot longer. Let's say for somebody who was a victim of domestic violence, whether it be a man or a woman, it's when their perpetrator goes back to work or the perpetrator leaves the house, that's then when they're free to come and speak about it. So while during COVID and during lockdown, people may not have been felt free to speak about it, now that, let's say, they're on their own that bit more, the children are back in school, then the incidents are, they're freer to speak about it. So Brian, you spoke spoke to some of the women that you met fleeing abuse and addiction in some cases and for them a shelter like this it's literally a lifesaver. Yes as you can imagine Claire um, for someone who has to leave a situation very quickly with children for example the idea of being able to access the private rental market or to avail of different types of accommodation in that space is very unlikely at the moment in in a in the short term. So the women I met who prefer not to use their names, um, the first person has three children. It's her second time needing assistance. The first time was seven years ago. She feels it was very difficult back then, but things, as you can imagine, have become a lot worse. She is, as you'll hear, full of praise for the support she's receiving in Adele House for the past nine months. And it does show the kind of impact a shelter like this can have. Now, she began by telling me how she felt having a family room in the shelter. Privileged to have this place to, for me and my kids, so me and three kids, practically like a two-bedroom apartment. So we'd have our own cooking facilities where we can sit down and have our food. Um, I would have been in the same predicament seven years ago. And things just didn't work out for me and three kids to rent a property. We're looking at probably about €1,800. Euro. Half would give you how much? Um, maybe I'd probably get probably 11 or 12. So you have to come up with 600 euro a month? Single mum. Yeah. Where am I going to get 600 euro a month? How are your kids? Really mental health, suffers a lot. Being in a place like this, he's looking for his friends to stay over. I just go from day to day, can't think about tomorrow. And are you getting the support you need? Because, you know, everyone I'd imagine who walks in the door here has trauma of some sort. Yeah, brilliant support. Um, I meet with the domestic violence worker, Penny. For anybody who might be in a situation, particularly around domestic violence, what would you say to them? Oh, get out. Get out. It's way safer. We're protected. Not, no harm can come to you. The staff are unbelievable. No, you're never judged. And is it only when you leave a situation like that that you realise what it means to feel safe? Definitely, 100%. I never knew the meaning of safe. Constantly over, looking over my shoulder, constantly worrying about, are my kids going to be taken over? What's going on? Walk away, there is help. They're like, the staff here are unbelievable. Just want to mention the manager, Colette. Oh, the most kind-heartedest woman you'll ever come across. Totally be lost without her. She's shown me and my family great support. And I'll be forever grateful to her. Sorry. You're okay. Take a moment. Never would have gotten the help without the support of this place. If this place wasn't here, I don't know where I would be today. I don't know would I still have my kids intact. 
So you can hear, Claire, how much the shelter has impacted on her situation. I mean, she's living in what is essentially a mini apartment within the grounds and all the services, all the wraparound services, the mental health supports, all the counselling services, they're all brought to her where she's at. So they also cater for women who are vulnerable to homelessness, who've perhaps had addiction issues or been homeless in the past, including this woman who had a, a difficult life, she told me, but she's now stable and feeling very secure living in the shelter. I'm here now a a year and two months. And if this place wasn't here, where do you think you'd be? Probably on the streets again. You'd been on the street previously? I have. I lived over in the car park for six months. In the multi-storey car park? Yeah. I was well sheltered, like, you know. Do you feel safe here? I feel I found myself here. But you're really coming in here to get better. Mm -hmm. And to... um, achieve something in your life that you never thought you could achieve. And in terms of addiction support now, how's that going for you? Oh, brilliant. Like, I did have apartments and I did have houses. Would you like a key to your own front door? I would. Mm-hmm. I'd be ready for it now this time. I've a lot of friends out there that's still in addiction, but I don't have to be in there anymore. I can just just say hello and pass on, mm-hmm. which I could never do that before. I had to be always in the crowd and always in the gang, and the apartments that I got before was for the wrong reasons, because I always loved an apartment to have parties and drinking. Yeah. Now I can say I really want a house or an apartment now, not to go and drink in it. I want to go and live in it this time. That's a woman who's availing of the services of Adele House Domestic Abuse Shelter in Cork, ending Brian O'Connell's report from this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme is compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shiradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another edition of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.